What is one of the one of the three great lies that the Bible tells us, or that the devil tells us, that we think are true? I'm thinking one particular lie that the devil tries to convince us of that that sounds like the truth. All the church talks about is money. So if you're visiting with us this morning, you're here on one of those rare occasions when we are do we indeed are talking about material goods more more particularly with respect to money. And this is the third in our series of this subject. And really, it's not just so much about money, but more, it's about attitude. What's our attitude toward these things and material things that God has uh, given us? How many have ever eaten out? When you eat out and uh, you receive relatively good service from the food server, typically there is something that is left behind. What's that called? A tip or a gratuity, to put it formally. And uh, when you leave a gratuity, uh, what amount do you typically leave? How much? It's up to 20% now. 20% of the bill. I know that because my daughter-in-law used to be a food server and she informed me. So when we, when we go to eat out and we, we are expected, literally, right, expected to leave uh, at least 18 to 20% gratuity after the fact. Now think about this. We live 18 to 20% on the table afterwards. And when we suggest a minimum of 10% to God, uh, why, why is there so much grief about that? And believe me, there is grief about it. The reason I know that is because nat- national statistics, figures, tell us, uh, surveys done by the Barna Group and others, uh, as they survey giving by Christians, evangelical Christians, who should be on top of things, the average giving is somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 to 2.5%. Is somebody missing something, do you think? Now, our church, historically, has been very gracious and very generous. But it's important, I think, every two years for us to review these principles. Would you agree with me? But again, it really comes down to attitude. What what is our attitude towards God? What's our attitude towards money? What's our attitude towards obedience to Him in this particular area? Anybody ever experienced financial problems? Financial stress, a few of you. Okay, not everybody. (laughs) Now, it's easy sometimes to act like everything's okay when there's great stress and there are financial problems. People say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. When in fact, you know, it's the proverbial, you know, you're the duck on the top of the water, but underneath you're doing this, right? You're freaked out, stressed, overwhelmed with financial problems. And so many people act like nothing is really wrong about that. I've rehearsed this once before with you, and and, uh, let me do it again, uh, this saying, and I don't know who said it, I picked it up. 
It says, too often we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need from people we don't know to impress people we don't like. <laughs> Do you ever think about that? There's more truth in that than we care to admit necessarily. There's another quip, and it goes this way. When our outgo exceeds our income, then our upkeep will become our downfall. That's a mouthful, but it really is the truth, isn't it? There's nothing fun about living with financial pressure. There's nothing fun about living with financial stress. There's nothing enjoyable about living with bills and burdens and especially nothing fun about living with the bondage of debt. And yet the majority of people today live under the bondage of continued financial problems, continued financial stress to one degree or another, and horrible debt. Uh, I had somebody just last night share with me that how easily they succumb to the use of credit and uh, needed four tires for, for the car and had the credit card and, and didn't have cash available handy and, and wasn't prepared and, and so used the credit card to buy the four tires. And then there was something else came up and something else came up. And before they knew it, they were $10,000 in debt and are still paying it off today. It's easy to get under financial stress and problems. Before we can solve those financial problems, we need to find out something, something very important. What we need to find out is who is behind my financial problems? Who is actually behind my financial problems? Who is responsible for the financial mess that I find myself in? Now, who do you think is behind your financial problems, if you have any? Now, you're going to be shocked when I tell you Now, make no mistake about it, we do have a very significant role in our own financial problems through the choices we make. Isn't that true? But there's somebody else behind those financial problems. Somebody else, and it's not your wife and it's not your husband. (laughs) Do you think that Satan wants us to be up to our ears in financial problems? Oh, absolutely. He wants us buried in in all sorts of ways, doesn't he? And yet, he's not even the one responsible for our financial problems. So so who then would would be responsible for our financial problems? This is going to shock you. God. You mean there's something I can finally blame God for? God is behind my financial problems? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And here's the irony of it all. You and I can actually get out of those problems any time we want. But we have to choose to do it, guess whose way? God's way. Just like everything else in life. Acknowledge him in most of your ways. Yeah, all of your ways. And that means that every I'm going to do everything. I'm going to conduct my life in a manner that is pleasing to him in every single way, and, and, and most especially with respect to money and dollars and income and finances. Is money a constant issue for us, typically? Yes, absolutely. Do we need it? Do we want it? Do we ever really have enough? 
We could. Listen. Have you ever seen somebody, or maybe you look at your own life, and it seems like everything goes wrong financially? seems like you constantly have financial problems in your life. Last week, the, the, the car broke down. week before that, it was my washer and dryer. week before that, it was uh, my daughter crashed the car. week before that, it was some... It's some you understand what I'm saying? It seems like it's, it's, it's never-ending for some people. Certainly not for everybody, but for some people. And it's easy for us, I think, and especially Christians can be very critical and judgmental, can't we? We can be really critical and judgmental. And it's easy for us to be critical of people like that when we see them and see their lives. We say, oh, you, 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 you know, we're like Job's friends. <laughs> you know, Job's three, three, three friends sat with him for seven days and were quiet, didn't say anything, but they couldn't contain themselves and they had to start finding out reasons why Job is having all this trouble. But it's easy for us to look and we just say, well, you know, you, you must be one of those people that is destined to have problems your whole life. And then we say secretly, thank God I'm not you. The Bible doesn't teach that people are destined to have problems continuously in this area in their life. The Bible teaches we have a power to choose. We can make a choice. We can make choices. You and I can choose to have a life that is drastically different from the life that other people choose. Think about that. We can have a life that is just tremendously different from the life that other people choose. Over the years, I've tried to instill in my son uh, this, this thinking, this frame of reference, this reality. I've told him over the years, if you'll always do what others won't, you'll always get what others don't. Now think about that for a little while. That speaks powerfully. And that's true for every area of our life, and particularly it's true for finances. If you'll make the right choices in your life and do what other people are not willing to do, if you'll be willing to follow God and to trust in Him, and live financially according to his principles, you'll get in your life what other people will never, ever experience. The tragedy is, more often than not, that financial problems come in our... that these things that come in our life are, are really the result of our making foolish choices. This is where I want you to look with me at the book of Haggai. Haggai is between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Handy, between the two Zs. That guy's only two chapters long, and yet his profound message. In Haggai, we read about God's people experiencing a number of problems, and the problems were a direct result of their simply ignoring God. Specifically, ignoring the things of God, and even worse, the house of God. They were putting their own desires first, their own comfort first, their own houses first, and ignoring God. Look with me just simply at the first two verses of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, 
son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now here's the word coming from God through the prophet Haggai to the people of Israel. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. He says, now, now we've got to keep this in mind. They'd made a decision. And what was their decision? What was the decision of the people of Judah? It's not time to do anything for God. I'm not ready. Have you ever thought that or said it? I'm not ready to get moving for God. Have you ever, has that ever been something you thought about? I'm not ready yet. It's not time yet. Now, that can apply to lots of different things. But you know when God's speaking. You know when God's calling. And you know when you dig your heels in, right? This was the condition of the, of the people of Judah at this particular time that God is speaking to. Now, look at verses 3 through 5. The word of the Lord comes a second time to the people through Haggai. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panel houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, what particular house do you think that, that the Lord's talking about? The temple. Now, remember, they had been off in captivity in Babylon. The city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. Now God has called the people, has restored them to the land. And now he wants them to rebuild the city, rebuild the city walls. That will be done with under Nehemiah and Ezra and rebuilding of the temple. But what were the people doing? What were they doing? Yeah, they were just concerned about their own issues, their own, their own comfort, their own houses, while God's house lie in ruins. And God just gets right to the point with them, doesn't he? Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panel houses while this house remains a ruin? In other words, you're not attending to first things first. Now, God's not called us to build a temple in, in a physical sense because we are the temple. We're part of the temple, if you were. We're a local expression of the temple of God, the people of God. God resides in his people. But there's a very real sense in which uh, Christians today are, are really not actively involved and it's not a high priority to build the church, to see that the church grow to participate in what God is doing in this world through the church. We're no different in many ways than, than the, the Israelites were back in the day of Haggai. Uh, remember, they'd been in captivity for over 70 years in Babylon. It's not time yet. I'm not ready. I've witnessed the people over the years, and, and I always hear this, I said, you explain the gospel to him. Say, now are, you, are you ready to make the decision? You want to? Pr- I'm not ready yet. <laughs> Why not? And the same thing for people in the church. Are you ready to get on with it in your life? Not yet. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panel houses while this house remains ruined? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. In other words, you need to think about this. You need to get serious. Now, watch what's about to happen. 
problems are going to begin piling up. And their problems with respect to their, their life, financial problems, begin to pile up. Verse 6. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. He's saying to them, you're like little gerbils in a cage going around and around in a circle. It doesn't matter what you do. Nothing seems to change. You work harder. You plant more seed. You do more stuff. And yet it seems if you have, you have nothing and you're not getting anywhere, just going through the motions. Now look at verses 7 and 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains, bring down timber, and build the house so I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. So in verses 7 and 8, God says, Now look, get on with it. Build my house. Don't delay. Get on with it. Now, there's a principle there for all of us. Would you agree? So whatever it is in our life that God is calling you to, wherever you're digging your heels and wherever you're delaying, he's saying, get on with it. Don't put this off. Because everything that we do individually fits into a corporate picture, does it not? And it's all, we're, all, we're all called to be part of the building up of the body of Christ. We're all to be participating in some fashion, some manner. So the principle holds true. The, 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 the specifics here is obviously the temple in Jerusalem, but we're talking about the broader venue of God calling us. And so they're, they're just going round and round and round. Now look at verse 9. Verse 9 tells us that they had worked hard, strategized well, planned carefully. He says, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. In other words, you did all this stuff. You expected some great response and return on your investment of time and energy and resource. But I blew it away. I blew it away. Who could we say legitimately is behind people's financial problems. God. Why can't I make any progress? Why can't I get ahead? Am I connecting here? Now, I think it's interesting that that he he makes this application with respect to their material well-being, their finances, their way of living, their earning a living. And it connects it directly to their honoring him or dishonoring him. Money is important. Money is important. How many want more money? Oh, not everybody. (laughs) Oh, pastor, I have enough. I'm content. (laughs) God bless you. I want you to have more money. God wants you to have more money. Why? Why would he want you? So you can lavish it on yourself, right? So you can buy the pastor a brand new Porsche. No. Why? 
so you can have more to invest in his kingdom. I suggested last time that as we talked about this issue that imagine if we were debt free, all of us were debt free. How much more money could we have to invest in the things of God? How much more could we, could we support just, just our missionaries? I mean, our church council doles out money to our missionaries. And we have to budget it. How much better would it be if we never had to budget it that we could say, our missionary says, I need this, this, and this. And we look at it and we say, it's taken care of. Don't worry about it. God provides. Wouldn't that be glorious? Rather than having them have to scratch and sniff and, and uh, you know, write letters and, and such to, to have to get support. See, the people here thought that everything was going to be absolutely wonderful. But in verse 9, God says, What you brought home, I blew away. Have you ever wondered this? Like at the end of the month, you, know, you pay all the bills and everything, and you say, where did it all go? Where did it all go? Isn't that amazing? You, you, you make all your deposits, and you see this nice balance building up. But there's something in the back of your mind that says, it's not really there. It's all an illusion, because it's all going to be gone as soon as I write out all these checks. Where has all the money gone? I don't know if you realize it or not, but the Bible says the money money has wings. It flies away. Has anybody noticed that? Yeah. Proverbs 23.5 says, Cast but a glance at riches. Or in other words, when you set your eyes on riches, don't forget, realize this, that they are gone, for surely they will sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. This is why in the previous verse, verse 4, Solomon says, don't wear yourself out to get riches. Why? Because they're just going to fly away. If it's just up to you, don't wear yourself out. Why? Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Now look at verses 10 and 11. He says, therefore... Because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, whatever the ground produces on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. God has called for a drought. God says you have your priorities all messed up. You put yourselves first and not me. So I shut it all down. That's what God is saying in effect. Beloved, God has the power to do that. Have we, have we not said that God is sovereign? All that we have comes from Him. That He's the one who determines how much, how much money we get, not our boss, not, our, not ourselves. He is really, ultimately. And the flip side of that is, is just as easy as He can open the windows of heaven, He can shut them up. When we put other things or ourselves first before Him, He will shut us down. Our financial problems, I want to submit to you, are among other things the result of God simply getting our attention. You got my attention. 
It's like the, the, uh, the prodigal son. He's off squandering his wealth, ignoring his father, ignoring his God. And finally, when he's at the absolute bottom, scraping along, he finally looks up and what comes to his senses. Nebuchadnezzar, we read about him, didn't we? Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest ruler on the face of the earth. God leveled him, didn't he? God brought him down, stripped him of everything for a period of seven years until finally Nebuchadnezzar looked up and acknowledged God. Every time you and I put ourselves first and God last, in effect, we are headed for trouble. Again, Proverbs 3 says what? Acknowledge Him in all of our ways. Acknowledge Him in all of our ways. God, I want, I want to acknowledge You. This morning, as I wake up, as I open my eyes, as I prepare for this day, Lord, You are first. Financial problems can be kind of like pain sensors in our body. Aren't you glad we have pain sensors in our body? I think so. Our pain sensors are given to us to keep us from what? From destroying our body. Now, if you've got, you got nerve endings in, you, in, in your hand and you put your hand on a stove, it hurts, which is a signal that says, stupid, get your hand off the stove. <laughs> now, if I didn't have the pain sensors, would I remove my hand from the stove? No, I'd just sit, let it sit there. And it would what? It would burn up. Not a good thing. Pain sensors are given to us for a redemptive purpose. To signal to us something is wrong. I like to make the analogy that, that many times, not always, but many times financial problems can be just like those pain sensors to signal to us something is wrong, something is, is out of order. Warning lights on your dashboard. I hate it when my check engine light goes on. But I'm glad that it goes on to warn me something's wrong. Turn the darn car off. Otherwise, you're really going to spend a lot of money fixing it. You see, they, these things are all designed to get our attention to help us to avoid unnecessary trouble. Pain sensors, warning lights, financial problems. Leprosy is an insidious disease. And what makes it so insidious is that it, it does, in fact, act to destroy the body's pain sensors so that you can literally burn your hand and not even feel it. If you look at the at pictures of people, especially in the in the, in the olden days, where with the leper colonies, people were lacking fingers and toes and hands and limbs, literally because they were so damaged, they didn't realize it, and they got infected and lost them. I suggest to you that one of the deadliest financial diseases people can get. One of the deadliest financial diseases people get is credit. And yet, and yet we need it. In the world we live in, we need it. We're told we need it. Get your credit score up. You need better credit. What leprosy is to the human body, I suggest to you, credit is to our finances. Credit tells us everything is okay, no matter what we do. As I mentioned to you earlier, this lady who used her credit, she found herself in deep debt. I believe financial problems are God's way of saying to us, 
we're not on the right path. We're not on the right path. In fact, most of our problems are a way of saying to us, we're not on the right path. Something I need to check some stuff out here. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, God says that he disciplines those he loves. Sometimes we get confused. Is God punishing me? No, no, no. If you are a Christian, he's not punishing you. He already punished Jesus for you. But he will discipline us. He will correct us, much as any wise, loving parent will do. Punishment always has a view toward the past. Discipline always has a view toward the future. It's like you're an athlete. You're being disciplined. You're being disciplined so that your performance can be sharper, more, more efficient, more effective. Does that make sense to you? The difference between punishment and discipline? God disciplines those he loves. Do we need to be disciplined? Yeah. You may not, in your own mind, be thinking you're doing anything wrong. And you may not be doing anything wrong. But we still need discipline, don't we? You can still be a, a, an Olympic uh, athlete, uh, the top athlete in your field, but you still need to go through the rigors of discipline to stay sharp. But most of us are not Olympic athletes. Most of us are weak, and we fail, and we make mistakes, and we succumb to our own pride, issues, priorities, selfishness. God is not about to let us walk in rebellion. He's not about to let us walk in disobedience. He's not, he's not going to let us get away with our foolishness. Why? Because he loves us too much. They're in a, they're in a loving parent who wouldn't discipline their kids for their kids' own good if they had the wherewithal to be able to do it and have it be effective. Isn't that true? There are times when some, you know, we see them, we just want to grab them and shake them. But you can't. It won't make any difference. But God can. God's very creative in how he can discipline us. And we thank him for it. Isn't that true? We thank him for his discipline. Now, turn to Malachi chapter 3, just a few pages over. Now, my thesis here is, as we looked in Haggai, God is the one behind the problems. Who shut down the Israelites' prosperity? God did. And why did he do it? Because they were ignoring him. So he ultimately is behind their problems. Now in Malachi, chapter 3 particularly, God is now the one behind blessings. So in either case, God is the ultimate uh, resource. Look with me, verse 6 of Malachi chapter 3. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. In, In contrast to us, we're back and forth, aren't we? He says, I do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. So if God was whimsical, if he was capricious, we wouldn't have any hope and we would be destroyed. But God is faithful. He is always faithful and stable and true. 
Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Now return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Return to me. But you ask, well, how are we to return? What signal can I send that I really that you really do have my heart? What signal, God, can I say to you, can I demonstrate to you that I have returned? What is it that you want to see in my life? Then he, God asks this rhetorical question. He says, will a man rob God? And yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? And God responds again. In tithes and offerings, you're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing you will not have room enough for it. How many still have room for blessing? Have you ever experienced having so much you didn't have room for it? Tip for truth? Do we still have more room? Yeah. Yeah. You say, well, he's just speaking in hyperbole there. It's just a figure of speech. I don't think so. I think God really means it, that he will pour out so much blessing that we we won't have room for it. Jesus himself says, give and it shall be given to you. How? One for one? No, he says it will be given back to you. How? Pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be poured into your lap. Does that sound like abundance to you? We had a woman share uh, Friday night testimony. And uh, she said, every time she reads this passage in Malachi, test me in this and see if I will not be faithful to you. She says, every time she reads that, she, she cries. Every time she hears it, she cries. Because it reminds her of God's faithfulness to her. She was a single mom, three kids, raising three kids all by herself, no support from the, from the father. And she one day, she hadn't, she hadn't, she wasn't a tither, she, you know, she was just living meagerly. She had hardly anything to live on, supporting her three kids. And she said, one day, she said, you know, she said, I heard you talk on that passage. And she said, I just made a decision right there. I have nothing to lose. Okay, God, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And she began to tithe on the little... She, she had to rearrange some things. She had to make some adjustments. She had to do without in some areas because she wanted to go put God first. And when she made that decision, she started doing it from her heart. She said money started coming from everywhere. She was just blown away. It was miraculous. She was not exaggerating. And this woman is not given to exaggeration, please. If anything, she's given to the opposite. But she could not extol God enough, his faithfulness enough to her life. And I know that many of you have the same kinds of testimonies about God's faithfulness to you when you trusted him. Not only with money, but in other areas of your life. Relationships and so forth. So here, Malachi, notice that God's the one behind the blessings. He says, you'll not have room for it. He says, I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, I'm going to protect everything. Wow. And then, verse 12, all the nations will call you blessed. For yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. 
The Israelites were always meant, among other things, to be a light to the nations around them, a light to the Gentiles. They failed miserably because they lost sight of their loyalty and devotion to God. How many want their lives to be a testimony? Can the Holy Spirit, even without you saying anything, can't the Holy Spirit just work in someone's life just by your presence in in their neighborhood? Absolutely. And so it all comes down to simply us honoring God in whatever He says. God will use us and He's going to use our life to be a light to all the people around us. Now, it doesn't mean we don't say anything. We, we still need to speak up. We still need to be overt in our Christian testimonies. But don't miss this. God is in control. You have to repeat that. You have to rehearse that reality. God is in control. This thing that's happening, good or bad, is not just coincidence. It's not just some crazy thing that just happened out of the blue. No, God is in control. There's order and design and purpose. He is either the one who is behind our financial distress, or He's the one that's behind our prosperity. He's the one. And guess who it is that chooses which one He is? We make that choice. We make that choice. Now, there's always objections about this. And invariably, every time I talk about this, and incidentally, uh, it's been two years since I've talked about this subject. And, and it's been documented. A number of people have come and said, that's right, it was two years ago you talked about this. But I always get these objections. People say, well, yeah, but you see, that's all Old Testament stuff. That's Haggai, that's Old Testament. That's Malachi, that's Old Testament stuff. We are New Testament people, as if it doesn't apply to us. Now Paul tells us, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 11, Paul says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. In other words, Paul says, all the stuff that's written in the Old Testament is for our learning Go back and he says, read them, study them, understand what happened in the past so you don't repeat the same mistakes. So I submit to you, the Old Testament is very relevant to our life. You can't just set the Old Testament aside and say that it's not relevant. No, we need the whole Bible. The whole Bible. And again, the argument comes up, well, tithing really is an Old Testament concept. And as New Testament people, we, we no longer tithe. Oh, really? Is that true? Paul talks about this concept in, in 2 Corinthians. Uh, he talks about this concept of proportional giving. How many know that? A man should give in proportion as the Lord has prospered him. You know that passage? So Paul talks about proportional giving. Now, I shouldn't even have to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Tithing is simply, what? Proportional giving. It's a tenth portion of the whole. Remember last week I told you it's based on the fact you have ten fingers? I still count on my fingers, do you? What is the absolute minimum that would represent the whole? The whole ten. One. Aren't you glad that God 
lets us keep the other 90? Proportional giving. A tenth is the same thing as proportional giving. Now, if you accept the concept that the Old Testament is no longer relevant to us, then you have to deal with the over 500 prophecies in the Old Testament about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Should we just discard those prophecies? Do what you think? No. No, it's imperative if we don't have those Old Testament prophecies in all their detail and all their uniqueness, we would never really have any confidence whatsoever that Jesus is the Messiah, even though he says he is. So we have those prophecies that say, there'll be one who's born in Bethlehem. He'll ride on a donkey. He will be. And you go all through those prophecies and you see that Jesus fulfills them all. You see how the Old Testament is essential? You can't disregard it. So we are Bible people. And Bible people are people of the Old and New Testament together. Amen? Do I hear an amen on that? The devil battles people, and especially new Christians. He battles them at two points. What are the two points, do you think? He battles them over, more over these two points than over anything else in their life. Not, not morality, not any of this. These two issues are critical, especially in the life of new Christians. Can you think of what they might be? Baptism and tithing. Think about that. Why does the devil battle people, new Christians especially, over those two issues more than anything else? Because both are starting points. They're starting points in our walk of obedience with Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that our water baptism is our public acknowledgement, testimony, if you will, of our identification with Christ in His death burial, and resurrection. This is why we baptize by immersion. It's a picture. It's a testimony. You go down under the water, and, and, and it's a picture of your death and burial with Christ. We bring you back up out of the water. It's a picture of being raised to new life with Him. And yet people battle with being baptized as if it's some insignificant, unimportant deal. No, no, we're commanded to be baptized. And we've gone on this past year, and we've rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. Encourage people, be baptized, be baptized. If you're not a baptized Christian, don't take communion. So the, the devil, if he can mess us up at baptism, at the very beginning of our Christian life, he can keep us from obeying what God said we're to do, then... We live our whole life, in effect, in disobedience, and the devil's won. Does that make sense? If I just dismiss baptism, I am, in effect, living my Christian life in active disobedience. And the devil's won. Does he have a foothold in my life at that point? Huge foothold. And then comes the tithing issue. Tithing is elementary. It's elementary. It's a starting point, believers. It's not the end point. We begin with 10%. That's how we start. If the devil can hook you by getting you not to tithe, and he can get you to disobey God in that area of your life, then he can rob you, guess what, of all the blessings that God wants to pour in your life. And we buy into it all the time. 
Well, I just can't afford it. See, I gotta have my thing over here, I gotta have my thing over here, I gotta have my, my cable TV, I gotta have my magazines, I gotta have my, and you name it, all the stuff that we add to our life that really are non-essential, that we end up putting ourselves first before God, and we don't tithe. We don't just do the minimum. Once the devil gets you to disobey God in one area of your life, it's that much easier for him to get you to disobey God in other areas of your life as well. If you compromise here, you're going to compromise here. It's a simple principle of life. Do we understand that? Does that make sense? Remember, (laughs) baptism and tithing are the beginning points of the Christian life. They're just the beginning points. As a Christian, we should want our Christian lives to expand, should we? I want to grow. I want to mature. I want to see God do great and mighty things. How many just want to see God do great and mighty things through their life? Good. Unfortunately, not all of you. But those of you who raised your hand, that's good. I'm glad to see that. You were in a minority, by the way. It's like everything else in the church. We all ought to be standing and cheering. Yes, I'm on record to declare I want God to do great and mighty things in my life. No, shut up, Pastor. (laughs) If we compromise at those two beginning points, if we don't start well, how vulnerable then are we in the race? If If we stumble at the start... We're going to stumble through the entire race. Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we read about two brothers. Who were they? Remember? Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. What was the issue with Cain and Abel? Anybody remember? They make the first what? Offering to God. God commands them, you are to bring me an offering. The first part belongs to me. It's mine. Now, is God selfish? No. He's telling them the very, very, very best part of the offering belongs to Him. And when you bring it, it's an acknowledgement of His glory and His holiness and His righteousness that we worship Him. It's sad that we, He has to tell us to do that when we should be doing it spontaneously already, right? So, giving really began with Cain and Abel. And it was in that passage, in that place, where they were supposed to bring the first fruits to God as an offering. God says to them, to the best of what you have belongs to me, bring it to me. In fact, Leviticus chapter 27 rehearses that. A tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. So we read that Abel brought the first, the firstlings, if you will, of his flock and of the fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and had regard for Abel's offering. But for Cain and for his offering, God had no regard. Now, we're not going to go into the details behind that and why. I just want to contrast the two. So Abel brings the offering. God has regard for it. Cain brings his offering. God does not have regard for it. There's obviously some things going on behind the scenes. What happened then? What happened? Cain says, well... Lord, if you don't like my offering, then I obviously need to make, make some corrections. And God says, go to your brother Abel, talk to your brother Abel, have him teach you how to bring a proper offering. Is that what happened? No. Cain got mad. And he got mad at his brother. And he killed his brother. 
you have to appreciate this. The very first murder in all of human history was over an offering. (laughs) And people are still struggling over offerings and giving to God today. Can you see how the devil works and incites people over honoring God from our wealth that he's given to us? Amazing. Abraham, chapter 14 of Genesis. Abraham has to go rescue his nephew Lot. He rescues Lot. He, he, he beats down a bunch of pagan kings. And he gains some spoils of, of the war, of, of the victory. And he, and he gives to Melchizedek, the, the prince of Salem, the king uh, who is God's representative, he gives to him a tenth of all the spoils. In chapter 28 of Genesis, you have Jacob, who's on the run for his life. And Jacob says, God, if you bless me, I'll give you a tenth of everything you give me. So somehow this idea of tenthing, proportional giving, was already something that people knew about in the ancient Near East. And we see Abraham and we see his uh, Jacob doing the same thing. I'll give you a tenth of everything you give me. Now in the New Testament, in, in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, does Jesus... Raise the standard or lower the standard, do you think? Let me, let me give you the verse. It's, it's verse 20, and Jesus says to us, he says, that your righteousness must at least equal that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Right? At least equal. Is that what he says? What does he say? No. It must surpass... Now, do you suppose that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law tithed? Yeah, Jesus commends them for their tithing. They were meticulous in their tithing. But he goes on to say, he says, your righteousness must surpass that of the religious class. Which seems to me to indicate that, you know, 10% is, is a starting point. We need to go beyond that. We need to be expressive. We need to have a vision of who God is and what he can do. And we need to test him and just really get out there and start living by faith. Wouldn't that be exciting? There's nothing more exciting than living on the knife edge of faith moment by moment. Would you agree? Those of you who understand what I'm talking about. Most Christians don't even have a clue what it means to live on the knife edge of faith moment by moment, moment by moment, trusting God. Trusting God. Oh, oh, here we go. It's going to be a wild ride today. But I know who's in charge. We offer sacrifices to God. Our, our life should be a living sacrifice, Paul tells us, doesn't he? You see the, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were what? Dead animal sacrifices. But Paul says, I want you to keep in view God's what? God's mercy, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Keep in view God's mercy. God, you've been merciful to me. You've been merciful to me. You've been merciful to me. How many would admit God has been merciful to them? God, you've been merciful to me. And when you acknowledge His mercy to you, that only what? That incites you. That incites you to want to respond to His mercy. 
And Paul says in that verse, the only, the only acceptable means of responding to his mercy is to offer everything that we are to him as a living convenience. Sacrifice. A living sacrifice. It means I put my life on the line every single day. Every single day. Now, is there a battle? Is there a battle in us on that? Oh, yeah. Does the flesh want to be a living sacrifice? No. We say, shut up, flesh. We're going to do this. Now, I suggested to you a couple weeks ago when we started this little, little, little series that if we are to be faithful stewards, it all starts with attitude. Life has everything to do with our attitude. And I suggest to you that we have to do something about our attitude first with respect to God's sovereignty. We have to acknowledge and realize and believe that God is sovereign over everything. My attitude has to be, God, you're absolutely sovereign. Now, that doesn't alleviate me and relieve me of any of my responsibilities. It just simply acknowledges that whatever he engineers, okay, he's doing to direct and guide and orient my life. Secondly, I suggested also that we need to be, if we're going to be faithful stewards, we need to pay attention to our attitude with respect to the subtlety of debt. How many remember that last week? And debt can be very, very subtle. You get into debt really easy. And now, the third thing that we have to make sure we have a right attitude about is the centrality of tithing. This is central. The centrality of tithing. The single greatest thing that you and I can do to turn our finances around is to make the choice to start trusting God and to start tithing. It will change your life. Now let me just give you some real quick principles about tithing. We're going to run through these fairly quickly. Number one, the tithe belongs to us, not the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. The tithe belongs to who? To the Lord, not us. Again, let me rehearse to you Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. A tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. Malachi 3.10, we already read it. Bring the whole tithe to me, to my storehouse. Joshua chapter 7 is a a marvelous, illustrative uh, uh, example. In Joshua chapter 7, you have Joshua leading the people into the promised land to, to to wrest it from the hands of the, of the Canaanites. And the first city that they must conquer is the city of Jericho. Remember they had to walk around the walls? It was impregnable. It was a fortress. It's the first city. It's the gateway to, to the, to the uh, uh, land of Canaan. So the first city they have to conquer is Jericho. Now God tells them something about Jericho. What did he tell them about Jericho? Michael, do you remember? What did God tell him about Jericho? He said, Jericho belongs to me. The city and all it contains are holy to me. So don't you take any spoils. Now, why would God say that, do you suppose? I suggest to you that Jericho was a tithe of the land back to God. The first of the cities to be conquered. And so they go in, and they walk around the city walls. They shout, the walls fall down. They go in, they take over Jericho. And everybody does exactly what God says. Except one guy. 
Who was the guy? Aiken. Remember him? My Aiken back? You'll never forget that name now. Aiken. Aiken secretly stole some of the stuff and hid it. Nobody would know. And so the Israelites now, they gear up and they go to the next city. It's a little tiny podunk village in the mountains called Ai. They should be able to take it out in their sleep. And yet they get whipped by the Aiites. <laughs> and so they all come back and go, what happened? What are we should And God says, there's sin in the camp. There's disobedience in the camp. Somebody did not treat me as holy. And then they begin this process, and they finally finally identify that it's Achan. Achan took some stuff for himself, and he paid a horrible price. They had to kill him, destroy him, and his whole family, everything that belonged to him. Get the sin out of the camp. Secondly, We're to bring the whole tithe into the source. We're to what? We're to bring it. Malachi 3.10 says we are to bring it, not mail it in, not send it in with somebody else, not e-transfer it. (laughs) We're to bring it. Now, do you suppose that God doesn't doesn't know about email and e-transfers and texting and tweeting and all the stuff that people do these days? He says, except you people in the 21st century, you can email it in. <laughs> no, he says what? Bring it. Is God's word timeless? Bring it. Now, why do you suppose God wants us to bring it? Because he wants to make sure we're here. He rehearses the same thing over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. He says, don't forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some. Well, I'm just going to come to church when I feel like it. Well, he's talking about money this weekend. (laughs) Believe me, words spread. People, the, 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 the... the rumor mill, the, the grapevine goes out after Friday night. What's he talking on? Money. Oh, I'm going to stay home this weekend. No, God wants us here. Why? Because the fact that we gather together, there's mutual strength, mutual encouragement. God gets praised when the body assembles together. He wants us to bring it. And so we bring our tithes. And when do we bring them? We bring them... He says, on the first day of each week. You say, where does it say that? 1 Corinthians chapter 16. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about their participation in an offering that Paul is taking from all the Gentile churches to support the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So this is one of his strategies to knit the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers together. you got the Gentiles supporting the Jews, okay? And so he says, now, when I, get to, when I get to Corinth, I don't want to have to take the offering. You take it before I get there, and here's what you do. You do it regularly, systematically, the first day of every week. So what's the first day of every week for us? 
All he's talking about is the principle of regularity that we give regularly and we give systematically. By the way, we're to bring the tithe into the storehouse. What's the storehouse? Well, remember, the storehouse for Israel was the temple. Now, we are the temple. So we're not, we're not talking about the building. We're talking about the church. And the church is the environment in which people are, what, cared for and fed. And so we bring our tithe to where the storehouse gathers, if you will. You wouldn't go eat at Burger King and then say, I appreciate the food, but I'm going to go down to Taco Bell and give them my money, would you? (laughs) No, we're to bring the whole tithe to the storehouse where we're fed and where we're cared for, where we participate. This is our church. This is our church. This is my church. This is where I'm grounded. This is where I'm growing up. This This is where I'm participating. This is where I'm going to worship God. Number three, we're to bring the whole tithe. The whole tithe, at least the whole 10%, if not more. Sometimes we do make excuses for people who are having a hard time and have never learned to budget and don't have never tithe and all that stuff. And, and they say, well, I just can't, I can't, 10%, that's a lot. I don't have, I don't have 10%. Yes, you do. You do have 10%. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. I argue with people. I said, let's sit down and work out a budget. I promise you, I'll find 10%. You may have to give up your cable. You may have to shop at one, at, 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 what is it, uh, the, the 99 cent store. Thank you. I'll find 10%. You may have to make some rearrangements in terms of your priorities. It's there, I promise you. Notice, God does not say, work your way up to it. God does not say, pray about it. God does not say, work on it. God does not say, if somehow, somehow you can fit it into your budget. God simply says, what? Bring it. The whole tithe. Whoa. Bring the whole tithe. How often do you buy coffee at Starbucks? How much, how much is an average thing of coffee at Starbucks? Four or five dollars? Do that two or three times a day? Come here, drink Hope Chapel coffee. For free. We have it every day. Stop in the office on your way to work. We've got coffee. Right? By the way, this is important. This is an important distinction. This don't 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 miss miss this one. Partial obedience does not bring partial blessing. Well, if I obey, obey just a little bit, I'll get a little bit. I'll get. I'll still get some, but no, you won't. No, you won't. If you think you'll just obey God a little bit and that will bring you a little bit of blessing, sorry, partial obedience is total disobedience. Partial obedience is total disobedience. How many married ladies do we have here? If you're married, would you raise your hand? Ladies, let me just posit to you a question. If your husband goes away on a trip and then comes home and says, Honey, I want you to know I was 99% faithful to you when I was gone. (laughs) Would that bless you? Would you say, Oh, wonderful. 
You were 99% faithful to me. No, you would say, 99 that's 100% unfaithfulness. Wouldn't you? How dare you? And the second important principle to remember is this. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Say that with me. Delayed obedience is disobedience. You mean I can't just put it off and then, and then obey later? No. Listen to what James says. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, sins. Delayed obedience. Well, at least I obeyed. So we're to bring what? The whole tithe. And the fourth principle, and this is something that confuses people a lot too, because they assume it's theirs. They can do with it as they please. Is that one of the great lies the devil tries to convince us of? We are not free to designate it. We're not free to divide it. We are not free to direct it wherever we want. That's the job of the leaders of the church who direct the affairs of the church. Acts chapter 4, verse 35 tells us there was the leaders of the church who directed the finances of the early church. Our job is simply to bring it. And Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 speaks of tithes and what? Offerings. So people will often say, well, you know, I, I tithe, but I, I, give, I give some over here and then I give some over here. That's not yours to do, apparently. You're simply to bring the tithe and, and, and let God's ordained leaders distribute it. But I want to make an offering over here. That's an offering. That's separate. You want to give some money to this person or that person or that ministry or that missionary? Great. Can you outgive God? No, of course not. Does he know what you're doing? Absolutely. Is he in control? Can he turn the spigot on and off? Can he meet the need? And here's a very, very important principle. If you believe that God is calling you to help support somebody, and you look at your budget, and you don't have any money in that budget to do it, there's no visible way you can do it, you need to say, you know what, I'm going to trust God that you are actually leading me to do this, and I'm going to give it by faith, and I'm going to trust that you'll supply it. This is how we function in the church, in the church council. We make decisions about money, and we don't see any money there, but we believe that something God's calling us to do. We go ahead and make the decision to do it, and we'll trust, and in, in almost invariably, God does bring and supplies the money after we've made the decision by faith to do it. It's easy to be run by your budget, isn't it? It doesn't require any faith at that point. Now, I'm not talking about spending money foolhardy and, and foolishly. I'm talking about prayer and really being, being directed and led by the Holy Spirit to do something. So, remember, God is the one behind our financial problems. God's the one behind our financial blessings. He says in Malachi, Test me and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. And pour out a blessing so much that you'll not be able to contain it. Can you think of a better deal than that? I can't. I can't. Remember, beloved, we are the ones who determine whether God is behind our blessings or, one, or God is behind our problems. The choice is ours. And I want to conclude with this. Joshua's words to the people at the end of the book of Joshua. He said to them, he said, you choose this day. This day, 
whom you will serve. Don't put it off. You make a decision today whom you will serve. Amen? God, thank you again. We love you. Church, we love him. We worship you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for your word, for your spirit. We thank you, Lord, for just the promise that you will provide every need as we trust you. I pray, Lord, for those who are struggling financially. I pray for those, Lord, who uh, are not giving, for those who are fearful, those who, Lord, have yet to make this decision. I pray, God, that you would embolden them, encourage them, and cause your word to speak into their minds and hearts. Lord, that they may flourish and know and experience your goodness and your blessing in their life. Father, I pray for them and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Turn to one another once again. Pronounce a blessing on each other if you would. Share with your neighbor one thing, one thing that's a takeaway for you from this morning. And then, if it's appropriate, only if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss. Let's stand together and sing God's praises one more time before we dismiss.